When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, Cleveland! You know, I'm not going to lie. I really wanted to start this podcast by hitting you guys with a doom, 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 doom. Because to me, you know, minus my poor beatboxing skills, that is really a great way to describe Herb Alpert. It's like you don't, you know, some people know the name, obviously, if you're a music fan, you can't tell the story of the history of music without talking about Herb Alpert and what he's done. But for a lot of people, that baseline, that beat really sums up who he was. It's iconic with his hit Rise, an instrumental track that went to number one. And then, of course, the Notorious B.I.G. and Puff Daddy sampled that for Biggie's hit Hypnotize, which also went to number one some nearly 20 years later. And Herb Alpert, you know, that longevity of what he's been able to accomplish being this huge jazz artist with Tijuana Brass in the 1960s. Then he goes on to found A&M Records with Jerry Moss and the list of artists that they put through on A&M is just insane. You know, with Janet Jackson, the police, the Carpenters, Quincy Jones, so many others. And so it's fitting now that Herb has his documentary it's called herb alpert is dot 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 uh <laughs> coming out this week and it's a who's who of people he's worked with in the documentary quest love sting uh, quincy jones carol king so many people interviewed in this documentary if, if you have a chance to check out the trailer for herb alpert is i think you should and i was honored to speak with him not just about the documentary but a lot of the stuff in his career and what was interesting to me is of course, I asked him about some of the bigger artists that A&M Records put through. But I was also able to talk to him about, you know, being an artist that was sampled so much. And for those of us who follow the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Herb Alpert was at the very first ceremony where he inducted Sam Cooke. And then he and Jerry Moss, 20 years later, were given the Lifetime Achievement Award. And what's funny about being a journalist and interviewing people, you could come up with the best questions in the world, things that you think people are dying to talk about, are going to give you these amazing stories. And Herb did that. I mean, there's some great stuff in what you're about to hear, but there's also these moments where you ask questions. And I guarantee you, for those of you listening to this podcast, that his answers to some of these questions, some of the ones that you yourselves would be interesting to hear, will shock you. They will surprise you. And that's the beauty of Herb Alpert. He's not out to please anyone. He's never trying to make hits. He'll tell you himself with his music or the music that he was putting out with A&M Records. He was just doing what he thought was right, what he loved. And that's the awesome part about it. And I was just happy to speak with him about a number of things, 
including A&M Records Discovery and Janet Jackson, The Police, this awesome documentary I think people need to check out. And then it sort of goes off because he's Herb Alpert and he's lived a lifetime into what he wants to talk about at the end. Uh, so enjoy this chat, me one-on-one with co-founder of A&M Records, Herb Alpert. Hey, Herb, thanks for joining me. I'm going to start with a question that might seem sort of odd. Is it a weird sort of concept to have a documentary out about your entire life? It is. I was uh, reluctant to do it. I've been approached for the last 20 years or so from different directors wanting to do a documentary on me, and I had no interest. I just felt like I didn't want to look at my life in reverse. I wanted to you know, stick current. But when I met uh, John Scheinfeld and I saw what he did and we had conversations about uh, what he would like to do and um, I feel like I think some of the things I've done in my life can can transfer over to other people and, and be helpful. I watched the trailer for Herb Alpert is when they make everyone that's being interviewed finish that sentence. Herb Alpert is dot, dot, dot. I'm assuming they made you do the same. What did you say when asked that? I probably said something like, I'm, I'm grateful, I, I and I am. I'm grateful for uh, what has happened in my life, um, the success I've had, because I think that uh, in 1962, when I did The Lonely Bull, that started A&M Records, that was the first, our first release, it was about timing, and the timing was right. And I got lucky, I was ready, uh, I had the sound, that, that trumpet sound, if mine is good, I know, but uh, it was at the right place at the right time, and I don't think uh, if we tried to start A&M Records in today's environment, we'd have a chance. We wouldn't have a chance. Why do you say you wouldn't have a chance? The way it's, it's, it was set up then, in 62, there were a lot of little record companies operating out of the trunks of their car. We had no aspirations of starting a, a big company. We were just released a record. The record took off like a rocket ship, and uh, distributors wanted an album, so we did a Lonely Bull album. And right then, I had I made a really good decision. I had the choice of I could do the Lonely Bull sideways and uh, do variations on that hit record, or I could uh, you know take that sound and and see how far I could take it. And that's what I chose to do. I, I, I know this sounds like a little, uh, he's, he's inventing this idea, but I, I never try to make a hit record. I try to make good records. I try to make a record that made me feel good. And if it made me feel good, I felt like, well, maybe there's someone else that might like it as well. But I was the, I was the first audience. I'm the only audience for the music I make. You talk about the record industry way back then. When you and Jerry started A&M, what was the atmosphere for you two? Was it a feeling of exhilaration? Was it liberating, terrifying? What did it feel like for you guys? Well, you know, I'm not a businessman. Jerry is the businessman. I'm a right brain guy. Uh, I was kind of caught off guard that it gathered so much attention so quickly. Uh, it was a pretty amazing feeling. You know, uh, Jerry was out selling the stuff and I was taking orders in, in uh, just the two of us in my garage in West LA, uh, West Hollywood actually. And um, yeah, it was a, a very strange feeling to have that much uh, energy happening at such a sh quick time. There's this point in the documentary that's, that's really the turning point where you talk about being this famous musician with Tijuana Brass in the 60s, but being absolutely miserable. What was the point where that misery started to fade away? Was it when you guys got a&M up and running? No. No, it had nothing to do with business. Okay. Uh, I, I, no, 
I was willing to throw my horn into the ocean. I didn't give a shit. I just wanted to be me. I wanted to find myself and what I, you know, why I was having problems. I mean, I thought I had the American dream come true. I had the brass ring, which I thought we were all going for. But uh, you know, I was uh, rich, famous, and not happy. So that that didn't didn't seem to make sense. But I was willing to give it all up. I just didn't. I just wanted to find out what I was doing and how I was wanted to live the rest of my life. And that you know, I was going through a problem of playing the horn. I was going through a divorce, and my uh, I was stuttering through the trumpet. And couldn't get the first note out right, but uh, I wanted to track that down and see how I could uh, overcome that problem. I found this teacher in New York, by the name of Carmine Caruso, who was who called himself the troubleshooter, and he uh, used to teach uh, brass players from all over the world who had, you know, ran into a little bit of a snag. And so when I met him, and I thought, well, maybe it's my mouthpiece. Should I change the mouthpiece? Should I? You know, use a different trumpet. Should I? He says, "Wait a minute, kid. You're on the wrong track here." He says, "You're the instrument. The instrument is just a megaphone. It's just it, that instrument you have right now is just a piece of plumbing." <laughs> and that was a big, uh, big moment for me. You know, realizing that, and I try to pass that information on to all upcoming uh, artists that uh, they're the instrument. So you guys start A and M in the '60s, hugely successful right out the gate. Go through the 70s, releasing hit records. Then you get to the 80s where the landscape of pop music changes even more. Yeah, you guys are putting out some of the biggest records of that decade. What was the key to longevity for A&M Records? Yeah, I think we picked on good artists. I mean, you, my <laughs> partner and I are both uh, not looking for the beat of the week. We were looking for artists that had something special to say in their own way. We found them. I mean, whether it was the Carpenters or Cat Stevens or the Police or Janet Jackson and Quincy Jones and Jerry Mulligan and Stan Getz. I mean, we had we had artists all over the board, but they all were, in our opinion, you know, they they were special. They had something to say in the in, in their own unique way. So we could talk about the artists you worked with with A and M for hours upon hours. I'm going to ask you about a few of the bigger names. What were your first impressions of Janet Jackson? I know uh, the story goes her father brought her to A&M uh, to sign a record contract. Well, I really didn't know her when she first arrived. John McLean, uh, one of the A&R staff members, you know, brought her and he he knew her talent. I, I really didn't. I, I knew her. She was an actress. I knew that. But I didn't know that she was not only able to sing, but she was really good. She was She could dance. And I think that at that particular time in the history of music, I think dancers had a big edge because they they seemed to always put the song in the right groove. You know that made you tap your toes or feel good when you heard them. So and Janet had that ability. Plus she was clever. She had a good voice. She was honest. She was uh, stuck up for what she wanted. And she's uh, she, I think she's an excellent artist. How about the police? You know they came to you guys through I think your London branch of the label. Uh, did you know the the band was special right out the gate? When I heard Roxanne, that was like a really interesting record. But when I first saw them at the Whiskey A Go Go here in Los Angeles, man, it was it was a great experience. I mean, I, I, for the first time, I recognized the power of of that type of music because there was just the three of them, and they were making music that sounded like you know eight people were on stage, and and Sting was was uh, dancing around the 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 uh, the stage like it was on a pogo stick, and it was beautiful. And, and of course, you can't deny that the guy writes a really good song. 
an intelligent song, <laughs> and uh, that uh, is always one of the keys. I asked about the longevity of A&M Records, but you've had longevity in your own personal career, releasing an album just last year. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Was it you being attuned to what was going on in the music industry and, and adapting to it? I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking about the music that I'd like to make. You know, when I did an album with uh, Hugh Masekela, which was fun for me to do, and it's a really good album. We did two albums together. We did uh, a tour. I enjoyed playing with him. I enjoyed making music. And then, uh, you know, in 1979, I did that record with my nephew, Randy, uh, Rise, and it was the number one record. And that was a great experience. In the studio, we did that uh, as an experiment because the 3M company loaned us a, 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 multi, a 32 multi-track digital machine. I was just trying it out for our uh, recording studios, and we had these songs that and my uh, uh, nephew wanted to do as a, as a disco uh, homage, um, homage, or whatever he would call it, you know, wanted me to do the old Tijuana Brass uh, Evergreens in a disco style, 120 beats per minute, and I, I, I started playing the first one, and we had some really great musicians in the room with us. But man, the minute I heard that, it just sounded terrible. It just sounded like, man, I was trying too hard to be, uh, you know, get a record that uh, I thought people might like. I, I, I didn't like that feeling. We had some time left in the uh, studio, and we had this song, Rise, that he wanted to do out of, out of disco uh, 120 beats for a minute. I said, no, let's slow this thing down and so people can get together and dance, you know, just slower groove. And uh, we slowed it down to 100 beats per minute, and... Bang, that was recorded live in our studios. And I remember listening to the playback when we had a, a really good take. I think it was our second take. And I was listening and got that feeling like, wow, this is good. I mean, I like this feeling. And I walked up behind our Julius Wetcher who was playing vibraphone. And he was a friend of mine. I said, Julius, man, what do you think of this thing? He, he turned around to me and he says, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> he hated it. I said, what do you hate about it, man? And he says, well, I have this four to the floor. It just drives me crazy. I said, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> Anyways, you know, I didn't let that distract me and uh, became a number one record. I was going to ask you about Rise, of course, uh, this amazing song that was a huge success for you. For a lot of younger generations, they discovered that through the Notorious B.I.G.'s Hypnotize, a song that went to number one as well. What were your impressions when you first heard that track back in 1997? Well, I knew it was a good record, but uh, I was always disappointed that these guys can't uh, be more creative themselves and instead of taking other people's ideas and grooves, uh, you know, they should create their own. But certainly not uh, disappointed that uh, this was such a big hit. <laughs> it's interesting you say you're disappointed that those artists couldn't create their own sound that they had to sample, but you could have declined the sample, right? You want to know the odd part of that? Those guys that did that, primarily in that particular period, they never asked you if it was okay to do it. They asked you after they did it. <laughs> so they got trapped. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. Nobody said, is it okay to use it? No, no. That was uh, after they had recorded it. So that's a whole other question. You're the first person I think I've ever talked to that participated in the very first Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony in 1986, uh, where you inducted Sam Cooke. What do you remember about that historic night? Um, hmm. 
I don't know if I can dredge up anything. I remember it being exciting, but uh, I, I I never gave that much importance to awards, Grammys, or you know any anything else. There's so there's so many great artists out there that, that don't get recognized, and I, I don't want to be like a Mr. Nice Guy, but uh, you know I see it all the time. I have a jazz club here in Los Angeles, and we have musicians that play at our club all the time that are extraordinary, and you never hear about them. And, you know they didn't have that. Lucky chance to have a, a, a record that maybe uh, made people aware of what they were doing. So, you know, I don't want to be a bah humbug about it all, but it, I'm not into awards. Do you feel the same way about you and Jerry receiving the Lifetime Achievement Awards at the ceremony 20 years later? Well, I mean, I like that. It was sweet, you know. Man, I, I don't want to, like, be a, a downer on this stuff, but uh, I'm not into it. Fair enough. Uh, let's get back to the documentary. You know, this thing was supposed to premiere back in May, and then COVID happened. Is it nice to finally see this thing get the light of day? Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I mean, I think the documentary is really good. I, I was very reluctant to do one. I've been approached over the last 20, probably 30 years by other directors that uh, wanted to do a documentary, and I never felt that I wanted to look at my life in reverse into the moment of my life. And uh, then I met John Scheinfeld, who did the documentary, and, and saw his work, what he did with John Coltrane and Harry Nielsen and John Lennon and some other projects that he did. And he seemed to understand uh, me and my music. Uh, I just seemed to be a fan of the music. And he started talking about the possibilities of doing one, and my wife was present. We were I just didn't want to do another documentary and gum up the works with documentaries but we found a way to do it that i thought was uh very human and i thought because of some of the things i went through in with my career that it could be helpful to others and that was when i said yeah let's do it especially with the idea that uh you know i was I thought i had the brass ring and i was rich and i was famous and i wasn't happy so there's a there's a whole message in there and i worked my way out of it i'm out the other end and my life is is uh, very beautiful. I'm very grateful for what happened. But I think it could be helpful to some people. And also the idea that uh, I wanted to give back. I didn't want to just buy a, an expensive painting and put it on my wall for my own gratification. I wanted to see if I could help other organizations, which uh, I do quite a bit of. And the Herb Alpert Foundation supports about 95 different organizations. And uh, I, I think it's so important that kids have this uh, creative experience at an early age. I think it's, it's crucially important for their own health and well-being and development. Not that they need to be a professional musician or an artist or painter or sculptor or poet or, or actor. It, does, it doesn't really matter as long as they can create something that makes them feel good. They might feel good about others as well, which is a win-win. And then... You could take that innovation uh, to another level. They can, whatever they choose to do in their, their life after uh, having this experience can only help them because our country was, was founded by innovators. I think it's commendable, you know, what you guys are, are doing and have done. I remember being uh, in high school and finally figuring out that I wanted to be a writer. And looking back, I think that creative part of me was always there, but there wasn't a platform for it when I was very young. Yeah, well, you know, a dear friend of mine was Sir Ken Robinson, who went around the world talking about creativity, and he, 
his thesis is, you know, we, we kids are naturally creative when they're young, five years old, six years old, seven years old, they're creative. You, you go into a class and say, uh, how many of you are creative? And they'll all raise their hand. We seem to beat that out of them. We seem to beat creativity out of them because you go into that same classroom when they're, uh, you know, uh, in high school and, and maybe three people out of uh, 20 will raise their hand. Being creative is is an important ingredient in our life. I think that's how we get all the good stuff. If we're honest and uh, our in, uh, integrity can be part of our, our uh, modus operandi. You mentioned this earlier, but you have a jazz club in Los Angeles that's a big part of your life. I'm assuming you guys have been closed since the start of the pandemic? Yeah, the jazz, our jazz club called Vibrato is closed, but we're going to be doing something outside in the, in the garage, in the parking area in the meantime. So, uh, yeah, it's been tough. It's like, um, the club is beautiful. We had uh, all the great musicians that are in, living in Los Angeles, even the ones that come in now and then playing here and I've had great experiences. I had, had an experience once with uh, the great uh, Dave Brubeck who played at the club and uh, he, at the time he was about 88 years old and he, wow. I remember him walking on stage. It looked like he was going to right, about ready to fall off the stage. You know, he was just kind of creeping under the stage. <laughs> he sat down at the piano and started playing like a kid, man, like he was like 18 years old. Uh, it was unbelievable. It was a great experience. And um, I guess the point is, I mean, how creativity can give you energy and, and sustain you in life. And so he, he finished playing, he, you know, played with his group, and then got up off the piano and started creeping back to the <laughs> green room we have upstairs. And I remember going upstairs to say hi to him, and he was like lying on the, <laughs> on the couch. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, holy fuck, man! You know, this guy gave out so much beautiful energy while he was playing. And you know, there was a moment in my life. But you think of all these great uh, composers and uh, conductors, you know, that live a long, long life. Picasso at 93 or so, and it's an important ingredient. It's pretty astonishing when you think about it. Yeah, well, it's an infusion, though. It gives you energy to do it. That's why, you know, we we had to postpone all these uh, concerts that we had when the COVID came, and we were going to play through Canada and, and the United States and end up in London playing at the famous uh, Ronnie Scott's Club. And I miss it. I mean, I, I don't miss it for the adulation. I just miss it for the idea I get to play with live musicians and we get to create spontaneously. And I, I think that's that's just uh, part of being an artist. I think that's what you crave. But I'm a lucky guy. You know, I paint and I sculpt. I've been painting for 20, uh, 30, 50 years, actually, and sculpting for 40 and Get to wake up in the morning uh, excited about what I'm about to do. I'm not excited about what I hear politically, but I'm excited about what I'm about to do. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty crazy time, you know, in the political landscape for sure. I mean, another four years of this creep is going to be terribly tragic. I think it's scary to a lot of people. The creepy part is that Bob Woodward's uh, expose, the book, the, the tapes him saying, you know, Bob, this thing goes airborne, and that's how it's being transmitted, it's airborne. Well, how about connecting the dots and say, let's all wear masks? You know, what a putt. So I'm, I'm sorry to take the conversation a little bit sideways, but man, it is frustrating. You don't have to apologize. Uh, I think the topic is unavoidable. 
at this point. I mean, you even go through the election and there's talk of a contested election, you know, maybe a guy who doesn't want to leave the White House. You can drag him out. You, do, you, you know, once you become president, you call the uh, army and take the fucker out of here. You know, <laughs> drag him out by his hair. Uh, it's a scary time. Anyways, it was nice talking to you. Hi, I appreciate you, Herb. Thanks for the chat. Uh, you take care of yourself. Okay, man. Thank you. Good luck. Bye, Sage. Bye, bye. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Herb Alpert, uh, you know, from an interview standpoint, it's great to talk to these legends and hear these stories. But, you know, a lot of them seem more humble than you might expect. And, and Herb's one of those guys. He's done so much with his life. And he did mention the foundation, you know, that that's done so much for young people in the creative arts. Um, so it was great to speak with him. And like I said before, Herb Alpert is it's out this week a documentary check out google it go on youtube check out the trailer it's a who's who of people that have worked with him just talking about how amazing herb alpert is and i want to thank anybody everybody for listening to cle rocks it's our latest episode come back next week we got some more also if you like the podcast and you're whether you're on acast apple music spotify wherever you're listening to it please give us five stars and let us know what you think thank you so much i'm troy l smith entertainment reporter for cleveland.com and the plain dealer newspaper you will hear my voice again soon boom 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 boom